We are entering into the last rhythm uh, in our series, New Creation Rhythms. We've looked at worship, uh, both personal and and corporate or church-wide worship. Uh, We've looked at uh, work. We've looked at eating, all of these things from a biblical perspective. And now we're going to look at this fourth and final rhythm, uh, which God has established, and that's rest. And we're going to be at several places uh, in your Bible. Um, If you want to start out in Hebrews chapter 3, where Terry read, I want everyone to look at at a Bible, whether that's uh, on your device or a physical Bible. If you don't have one, that's a page uh, 1002 uh, towards the back of your Bible. But as you're turning there... um, When we speak of rest, what do you think of when when you uh, hear the word rest? I think it's probably pretty safe to say that most of us suffer with the tendency towards not rest, but restlessness. How many of you would say, um, "That's that's an issue in my life, restlessness? Boy, we got a bunch of liars or spiritual people. All of us struggle with restlessness. Whether that is just for a season or is a continual state of our lives. And there's a few ways where this shows up in our lives. This spirit of restlessness. uh, One of them, of course, is in restlessness busy lives. We often run from one thing to another thing, uh, and, and many times we even applaud ourselves and find our significance by just how crazy busy we are. Because if we have a full agenda, then somehow that must mean we are doing things right. It's interesting um, concerning busyness and its, its effects, not only on our own lives, but on uh, the lives of those around us. Uh, in a study, uh, one person records this, uh, did you know that secondhand stress is a big problem for kids? So if you're a really busy, stressed out parent, it's actually having effect, an effect on your kids. Uh, The report says researcher Ellen Galinsky interviewed more than 1,000 kids in grades 3 to 12 and asked them this question. If you were granted one wish to change the way that your mother's or father's work affects your life, what would that wish be? And it says the kids' answers were striking. Instead of wishing for more face-to-face time with their parents, they wished that their parents would simply be less stressed out. So we see here that it's not as much the amount of time, it is the quality of time. And kids know when their parents are stressed. There are many factors, of course, that that contribute uh, to our busy, restless lives. Uh, Another author and speaker Uh, gives five reasons for what he thinks drives our busyness in our lives and in our culture. I just want to really quickly give you those five. Uh, He lists, first of all, um, what drives our busyness is multiple responsibilities. And he explains, he says, our responsibilities at work, being married or in a committed relationship, being a parent, owning a home, All of these multiple responsibilities tend to drive our busyness. The second reason he gives is changes in circumstances. And he explains you're stuck in traffic and running late for a meeting. The school calls and tells you that your child is sick, or they tell you that they need to wear masks all day. (laughs) The printer is broken. A client shows up to meet unannounced. Changes in circumstances are a factor that drive busyness. Number three, the desire to feel needed. And he explains uh, that in in this category, there's a uh, 
a tendency of feeling anxious about how others perceive our skills and abilities, uh, equating getting things done with personal value. Uh, there's a tendency that we can have that we find our value in the things that we do. And again, if our agenda is full, then that somehow adds a sense of importance or belonging in our own minds. It feeds our self-esteem. Number four, personal habits and upbringing. What can drive our busyness is is our personal habits, our upbringing. Uh, Maybe some of us were being raised in a family where if you didn't look busy, you were given a task to do. So you better keep yourself busy. And then uh, the last uh, factor that he mentions that drives our busyness is trying to be efficient. Not wanting to waste any valuable time, so we pack the day end-to-end without any space between meetings, calls, or tasks to be completed. Many times in trying to be efficient, we are actually driving ourselves uh, into the ground. So with these five reasons, uh, all of these things do drive our busyness, but what I want to look at is that I believe that there's another more foundational reason that we are restless. You see, I believe we battle with an internal spiritual struggle that feeds unrest in our souls and distract us from where our true rest is really found. Because as we're going to see this morning, sin has broken into this world and severed the true rest that God has created for mankind. The true rest that He invites us to enjoy. You see, as we look at rest over, uh, depending how far we get, over the next two to three weeks... This isn't going to be a sermon on five keys how to declutter your life. This isn't going to be how to look more positively at your circumstances, and here's the three ways to do it. No, over uh, over the next couple weeks, what I want us to realize is that rest, in and of itself, the concept of rest, it's an elusive thing that we will chase and chase and chase and never grasp unless the reality of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and what that means to each day of our life until we realize the reality of Jesus and it gets grounded in our hearts. That's the answer to restlessness. So this morning, we are going to look at what true rest is according to the Scriptures and how we are to seek to realize it in our lives. And As you know, our our key theme in this series has been, uh, in Christ, believers are free to live as God intended. And you know how God has intended us to live? It is to live in the rest of Christ. Not in the rest free from stress, not in the rest free from responsibilities, but we are free to live in Christ's rest. So let's say this theme together. In Christ, believers are free to live as God intended. Let's open this morning with a word of prayer. Father, I pray that Lord, this is a universal issue, Lord. We all struggle with restlessness. Father, it's a very real part of each and every one of our lives. And Lord, I pray that rather than seeking quick solutions to our restlessness, that we would seek to look to the foundation of rest. That cornerstone that cannot be shaken. That cornerstone which so many countless individuals in our world stumble over because they reject Him. 
Father, would we in our everyday of life, not practically in our decisions and our thought processes, would we not be forgetful of the cornerstone of our hearts and lives, Jesus Christ? Would we seek to understand from the Bible what rest is and where it is found? In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to look at a few, a few uh, elements this morning in just providing understanding as to what the Bible says regarding this concept of rest. And we're going to start by looking at the foundation of true rest. Now Terry read Hebrews 3, verses 12 uh, to chapter 4, verse 13. And we are going to unpack that that passage as we uh, move along, uh, but not this morning. But in that chapter, I just want to briefly say this morning, we're not going to reread it for sake of time, but the author of Hebrews, he is is trying to spur on to encourage the, Christ, uh, the Christians he's writing to not to turn back on their faith, but to continue in the faith that they have claimed. And he gives them two, he gives them one example of individuals who turned away from God's rest, and that was in uh, amongst the children of Israel, that though Israel was a nation... Though corporately they were God's people, there were individuals within God's people who were not looking to God in faith. And when God told them to take the promised land, they turned and said, it's too great for us. Oh, that we were back in Egypt. And God says, they will not enter my rest. He gives us an example of of what to avoid, the heart of unbelief. But he also gives us in this passage a foundation of where rest is. Of where rest begins. And we see according to our text that it begins, as we look at verse 4, he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. So if we are going to understand this concept of rest, then we have got to go, and this is what we're going to do, and like what we've done with every single one of these rhythms we've looked at, is we have to start at the very beginning of Scripture, the book of Genesis. So I would invite you to turn to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 2, we're going to draw our attention. This is the passage that the author of Hebrews is referring to. And I'm going to start reading at verse 1 of Genesis 2. In the account of creation, we get to day 7, and, and Moses here writes, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. You see, what we see from the very beginning pages of Genesis is that there is a creation rest. A rest that God himself has established. Now when we look at chapter 2 and and verses 1 to 3, maybe it has caused you to think in the past... Why does it say on the seventh day God rested? Was God somehow tired from creating? Why is this included? Well, what we are going to see and what I want to unpack for you for a few moments is that God's rest is seen 
as the goal of creation. God's perfect rest is the destination to which all of creation and God's people are headed to. You see, before sin ever enters into the world, Genesis 3, God has already told us, this is my plan for creation. That they would enter my rest. As we kind of unpack this theme, we have to, uh, to understand what it means to enter God's rest and that that. God's rest is the goal of creation. We, we have to, to think of a few concepts here. The first thing we have to understand is that what was the, the climactic creation of God? What was it? Don't be shy. It was man, right? So, so you, you see a pattern here that it says that God saw or God, God said, and then in some verses God made, or God saw what he made, and then, and then uh, God saw it was good, and God called it this, and then evening and morning was the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth day. Well, we have a pause from this uh, kind of repetitive pattern uh, in, in chapter 1 in verse 26. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Now we've talked about this time and time again in these rhythms, uh, but once again I want to emphasize to you, uh, it is mankind and only mankind that are created in God's image. Then verse 28, uh, God blessed them. God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then we see in verse 29, uh, what Dennis talked about, uh, the giving of food to eat. Um, and God gives, God gives his creation to Adam and Eve to, to rule over as his representative, as his image bearer. So mankind is the climactic creation of God. But get this, the sixth day is not the climactic day of creation. When we look at what God created, man is the, 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 the pinnacle of his creation. But when we look at the seven days... The seventh day serves as the climactic day of creation. And we see that because of a few different things, even in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 2. In verse 1, for instance, the heavens and the earth were finished, all the hosts of them. We see here a completed creation. And in fact, uh, verses 1 to 3 is pretty repetitive. Verse 2, God finished his work that he had done. Verse 3, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Creation was complete. It was final. This was a climactic day in which everything was completed. But not only that, but the seventh day is recorded for us in a unique way. And there's a couple things that we have to see here. Again, the pattern in describing the days of creation, God said, let there be, and then God made what it was, God saw that it was good, and then at the end, God called that creation um, and the, the final, and then there was evening and morning, the the fill-in-the-blank day. Now here, we see that there is a different pattern. First of all, we notice the repetition of the word seventh. All the hosts were finished, and on the seventh day, God finished his work. He rested on the seventh day. Verse 3, so God blessed 
the seventh day. In all of the other days, it's a simple kind of tagline that God did this, and on this, and this morning and evening was the second, third, fourth day. Here we have the repetition of the number seven, because number seven, uh, it, to the original reader, would have emphasized to them the idea of completion. It was finished. The idea of perfection. God had created his perfect, completed world. And then we see that God does something unique in verse 3. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. You see, all of these, all of these uh, textual clues are pointing us that this day was of importance. This is the day in which God completed his work of creation and he has set the trajectory for his creation. A trajectory of rest and relationship with God. You see, God, the only other times up to this point that we, we read about God blessing anything is that we read in Genesis 1.22 that God blessed the animals, and he says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the waters and the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. God blesses the animals so that they would carry out the function to which God had designed them for. But not only that, but then in verse 28, God blessed Adam. He blessed Eve. It says he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the very ones that he pronounced his first blessing on, and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So again, God blesses his image bearers to perform what he has called them to do to be fruitful, to multiply, to extend His glory even past the borders of Eden into all the world, to have dominion, to reign as God's image bearers. And He blesses them to do it. And what is the context in which He blesses them to fulfill their commission? It's the seventh day. The third time we read that God blessed something is he blesses the seventh day in other words the context in which adam and eve are to serve god as his image bearers is the context of this never ending seventh day did you notice that in verse three there's no conclusion here it doesn't say as it does in all the other passages. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth day. Why? Because the seventh day was intended by God to be a perpetual world, a perpetual day, so to speak, in which God's people carried out their mission for him and lived in relationship with their covenant creator. This is the world that God intended. This is the world that God created. And I would argue, as we will talk later, this is the world, except now it will be truly subdued and it will be, be truly God's glory, will truly shine from end to end uh, in Jesus' rule and reign and, uh, for eternity in the new heaven and new earth. This is still God's plan. But we see from verses 1 to 3 that God's rest 
is the intention and the goal of his creation. But we also, I also want to elaborate a little bit more about how God's image bearers, Adam and Eve, were intended to participate in this rest that God established. You see, God's image bearers are to participate in his rest. You see, Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28, uh, show us that God creates Adam, he creates Eve in his image. They are uh, his children. Adam is God's son. And as his son, God is Adam's covenant God. God brings man into relationship with himself and he invites him into his rest. You see, this rest that Genesis 2, 1 to 3 describes, it is both a rest in the context of his creation and it is a rest in the context of his image bearers. That is why when the fall comes, it affects not only humanity, but this whole world. Paul says this whole world groans under the strain of sin. Did you know that Romans 8 says that creation is waiting for the day that Jesus returns and the curse of sin is removed and that we have our glorified bodies because then creation says, yes, we too will be renewed along with the image bearers. You see, God invites his covenant son, Adam, his covenant daughter, Eve, into this special rest. So what is this rest that's being described in Genesis 2, 1 to 3? This rest, it is a sovereign, it is a kingly rest in which he, his rule is established in the completion of the created cosmos and he has set up his image bearers to, to, uh, to sh- shine his glory across the world and as God sovereignly rules, his obedient creations reflect his rule on earth. And there is a perfect union between God and man and the creation. That is the rest that's being referred to. Now many times we read Genesis 2 to 3 and we simply think that, okay, God rested and the reason it's in there is because God wants us to rest. And and that may be true. I'm not trying to, uh, to negate Uh, the concept, and we'll talk more about that. But, But as you can see, this is a much greater concept than just a physical resting. This is a much greater concept than even a physical setting apart of one day a week. You see, God's rest that's being described here, it is not a Rest to recuperate. This is an active rest. In fact, God does not cease from doing anything on this seventh day. No, what does Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 tell us? We should have that on the overhead, right? He... Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. And get this, Jesus is God's ultimate image bearer. He is the exact imprint of his nature. And what does it say? He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Isn't this awesome? The same word that spoke creation is the same word that sustains creation. You see, God's rest is an active rest. He is now sustaining what He has created. 
And you see, we as God's image bearers, uh, actually I should probably uh, put this in the context of Adam, Adam and Eve as God's image bearers in Genesis 2, 1 to 3, they're living in the rest that God has established between himself, his image bearers, and his creation. It is not an idle rest. It is an active rest. What was the role of Adam as God's image bearer? Well, we read in Genesis 1.28, I'm not going to take time to read it, but we've already seen that they were to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, to subdue it. What does that mean, to subdue the earth? You see, God created a perfect world, but yet this perfect world still needed to be subdued. God's specific relational glory with his creations resided in the Garden of Eden. We don't have time to get into it, but when you read the descriptions of the tabernacle and of the temple, um, and you even read in Revelation the description of the new heaven and new earth, uh, all of those, the tabernacle, temple, the new heaven, new earth, all use language that reflect the Garden of Eden. So God's glory dwelled in the Garden of Eden with his creations, and Adam and Eve were called to subdue the earth. They were to begin in the garden, and as they multiplied, spread from there, as they multiplied image bearers, they were to order, to, to uh, order and 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 use the gifts that God gave his creation to spread out throughout creation and to rule this world representing God, the sovereign king. That's a very active state of rest. We also see in Genesis 2, verse 15, the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So again, this this garden temple, so to speak, where God's presence dwelt with man, God places them in the temple. Very similar to when, um, when a temple was made to a god, And what would they do? They would put the image of the God in the temple to show that this God is the God of this temple and he rules this temple. You see, God puts his image in this garden temple. And what are they to do? They are to work it. They are to keep it. They are to guard it. Did you know those two same same verbs are found in, for instance, Numbers chapter 3, verses 7 to 8, of the priests in the temple. They were to take care of the temple, and they were to guard it from anything unclean. You see, this state of rest, this rest of relationship that is found only in God, it is not a rest from doing anything. It is a rest that is found in relationship to God himself. You know, that's why sometimes when we go off and say, we're going to go to the beach, we're going to go on vacation, just to wind down, to rest. I don't know about you, but I oftentimes come back and I'm no more rested. You know, sometimes the solution to our busyness and our craziness, it is not simply getting time to be away. Because we just came back, we come back to the same thought patterns. We, came back, we come back to the same habits. We come back to the same way of doing things that got us messed up in the first place. The key to true rest is found in the foundation of your relationship with the sovereign king of all the universe. You see, this true rest, this foundation of 
true rest, as we establish what rest even is, it is a creation rest. It's a rest that's established before sin ever comes into this world. Uh, but a, a second aspect of and setting up this foundation, sin does come into the world, doesn't it? And this creation rest now becomes a redemptive rest. A rest that can only be found in God somehow undoing what his image bearers did. You see, just as God put Genesis 2.15, Adam and Eve in the garden to serve him, and to have that relationship. Genesis 3.8 uh, tells us that God walked with Adam in the cool of the day. There was this relationship. And it was in that very garden of all places that rest was lost. You know the passage Genesis 3 and, and verse 15 where God promises that that he is going to undo what Adam and Eve did. That from the woman would come an offspring that would bruise the head of the serpent, but in doing so, his heel would likewise be crushed. Mankind is now left vulnerable they are removed from the physical presence of God in the garden. The cherubim are now guarding the tree of life. They are exiled. But I find it so interesting that before God ever places the curse, the curse is listed in, in chapter 16 through 19 on Adam and Eve, he gives them that promise in Genesis 3.15. You see, rest was lost in the garden, but it was in the garden as well that they were given the promise that rest would be restored. Rest will be restored. We see this hope in Genesis 3.15. Generation after generation go by. If you turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 5. You have another pattern similar to creation. You have a pattern. God, um, God said, God saw, God made. Uh, all those things, the evening and the morning were the whatever day you're, that you were on. We see another pattern here in Genesis 5. That's the pattern of death. So-and-so lived. He fathered so-and-so. Uh, his children lived. And then, conclusion, all the days of so-and-so were so many years, and he died. But there's an interesting comment when you get to verse 29. When this Noah figure comes on the scene, his father, verse 29, calls him Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief. Relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Did you know that the word Noah sounds very similar in the Hebrew to the word for rest? there was a promise that restored rest would come. You see, the, the responsibilities that God gave Adam as his image bearer were no longer in that perfect relationship between the creation and the covenant creator. The relationship was broken. The, the world was cursed and the, 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 the responsibilities of Adam were no longer done in that spirit of rest, but of toil and strife. And Noah's father looks at Noah as the possible answer for relief, for comfort, for rest. But as we know, 
Noah was not the answer. Similar to Adam, after creation, or after the flood, there's a lot of similarities with the creation account and the Noah account. Noah is seen as kind of another Adam figure. And guess what happens to, to Noah? He's found, because of the fruit of the vine, he's drunk and found naked. Just like because of the fruit in the garden, Adam partakes of it and he's naked. Uh, scripture's showing us that, man, true rest is not found in Noah either. But we are continually, as we unpack the Bible, we are given continual hope in rest. Because we read, even in the Old Testament, rest was indeed tasted by God's people. You see, in the Bible, rest is always found in the context of God covenanting himself with mankind. If you're unsure about, about what, what the covenants are all about, I'll put a plug in for our podcast starting on the 31st. Uh, that's one of the things we're going to take a few episodes to talk about. What's the deal with the covenants? Anyway, that, 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 that's the end of the commercial. Back to the sermon. And what, but, but rest is always found in the context of God covenanting himself with man and man doing the same back to God. It was present in the garden. And as we, we're not going to turn there, but we go to Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, the rest of the Old Testament, we see that God covenants himself with man in the context of the promise of rest. Let me just give you a few examples, and, and uh, I have a few verses on the overhead, but we won't get to those till, till I get to them. Uh, but just listen. So the people, the children of Israel, God redeems them out of Egypt. God promises them that he is going to take them to a land that will be their own, fulfilling the promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that God gave to them. Notice the words rest. Deuteron For instance, and I'm just giving you a few. There could be so many more. In Deuteronomy 3, verses 18 to 20, God tells um, the, the Israelites, this is the generation after what we read of in Hebrews, the ones that reject going into the land because they're afraid, they wander in the wilderness 40 years and now their children grow up and they're about to, to go into the promised land. They're about to defeat the Canaanites. Well, Moses tells them in Deuteronomy 3, he tells all the tribes that they are to go into the land of Canaan to defeat the enemies in faith in God's power. And he says that they are to do this until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as to you. And they occupy, they also occupy the land and the Lord God get, that the Lord God gives them beyond the Jordan River. In Deuteronomy 12 and verse 10, uh, Moses instructs the people, but when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall bring all that I command you. You see, the, the promised land was looked upon as a return to Eden. Why? Because once again, God would give them rest. And not only that, but just like God dwelt with man in the Garden of Eden, God promises, he says, I'm going to have you establish a tabernacle and I am going to dwell with you there. You see, God is offering his people rest. In Deuteronomy 25 and verse 19, again, Moses says, When the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance 
to possess. You see, there's a difference now. Sin is in the world. And the defeating of the evil nations, it, it, is, it is showing what the ultimate seed of the woman will one day do once and for all to evil, to Satan. The trampling down of the enemies of God. Now when do we see the beginnings of the fulfillment of, of the promise of land? It's in the book of Joshua. In fact, before Joshua ever crosses the Jordan with the people, Joshua says this to encourage the people. And this will be on the overhead. Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, the Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. You see, the promised land was meant to once again be a new Eden where God's image bearers, no longer just Adam and Eve, but now the nation of Israel were to live at rest and in peace as they perfectly obeyed God in covenant relationship with him as his image bearers and displayed God's glory to the nation. We read in Deuteronomy that God promises that if you follow me, you follow my commands, you do not fall into the idolatry and the wickedness of the surrounding nations. I will be your God, you will be my people, I will bless you. And the people would serve as priests showcasing who God is to the nations. The end of Joshua 21, we begin to see a fulfillment of this initial rest. Joshua 21 says, The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hand. And get this, not one of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. And we don't have time to get there, but we read of David who was the great king and, and the Lord was giving him rest from his enemies. And then we get to Solomon. And, and, and I have a verse on the overhead to show you, 1 Kings 5.4. It says, but now, Solomon speaking, the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. You know what this was? It was God's covenant people walking in obedience with him and God giving them the reality of the covenant rest that he established in creation. Though it was not a full and final covenant rest, they tasted of it. But this was not the end of the story. For as we begin to close, I want you to turn back to the book of Hebrews. What does verse 8 say about these initial tastes of rest that Israel experienced? It says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. What I want us to close as we just look at this point number one this morning, this foundation of true rest, is that true rest can only be found in God. 
And as we've seen, sin entering the world has broken that rest. But praise be to the Lord, and as we'll unpack this more next week, God has provided an ultimate rest for his people, and that rest is found in Jesus Christ. So maybe this morning, man, you have been been in a state of restlessness. You have been in a state of discouragement, of of fatigue, of, of at your wit's end. Could it be that along the way, with that busyness, with that stress, with that turmoil, you have also lost sight of where your true rest is found? For Adam and Eve, it was trying to sow the fig leaves and trying to restore that state that they lost. For the children of Israel, it was trying to make alliances with other nations and and trying to maybe see if the other gods plus the God of Israel would truly work out better for them than simply relying on the one and only true God. And for us as his people, man, we think of all sorts of ways where we try to find the answer for the restlessness of our hearts. But listen, it is only found in Christ And that's true if you're here today and you have never turned in repentance and faith to look to Jesus. And that is true if you've been saved for 85 years. We always have to remind ourselves and turn back to our rest. Why? Because we see the need of it in the book of Hebrews. Thank you.